0: Hard work will make you free. Had you entered one of the concentration camps in Nazi Germany, as you were entering into that, those are the words that you would have found written above the gateway. It was in every one of those concentration camps. This German phrase, and I'm going to butcher it, Arbeit macht frei. Work makes you free. It'll liberate you. It'll give you freedom. And as I saw that and I was reading it, I thought, I really don't understand what that means. What was the thought that the Germans were trying to convey to those, those prisoners, all kinds of different prisoners in addition to all those Jews who were seeing that phrase? It was a man named Rudolf Haas that made the decision to put that in that gateway as the prisoners were coming in. And in his book called The Kingdom of Auschwitz, a man named Otto Friedrich explained why the decision was made. He said this, his, he seems, referring to Rudolf. he seems not to have intended it as a mockery or even to have tended it literally as a false promise to those who worked uh, to exhaustion that they would eventually be released but rather as a kind of mystical declaration that self-sacrifice in the form of endless labor does in itself bring a kind of spiritual freedom. In other words, it was a lie. It was a false hope that those who were entering in would have some kind of equal liberation to work with. But this liberation only led to suffering and even to death. As a matter of fact, they would mock this phrase, those who were in the concentration camp, they said, work will make you three, free through crematorium number three. And it's also the spiritual lie of this age. It's a satanic lie. It's even a religious lie. It's a false hope, an impossible dream of many people in the world that think something along these lines that when they die, they will have done so much good work that God could not possibly keep them out of the gates of heaven. Lord, look at what I've done for you. Put it on the scales, and you'll see that everything I have done will open up that gate to heaven. You owe me the right to enter in. And see, that's the hope of every false religion, that somehow that goodness will give them the right to enter in by doing a lot, supposedly, for God. And yet, in the Christian faith, good works have a place. As a matter of fact, they're even important. They're significant in the life of the believer. I get to a passage like Ephesians 2.10, and I read, For we are his workmanship... Created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And see, it's this love of God that liberates. It's the blood of Jesus Christ that liberates. He died in my place and I'm free. But free to do what? It is to do these good works. But why should I do these good works? What should be my motivation in the Christian life? To do things that God looks down upon and said, This is good. This is pleasing to me. In other words, what does it mean to be motivated not by fear, not by some false promise, but by grace? That's what I want to talk about this morning. We're going to end Titus chapter 2 today. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. As we can look in Titus chapter 2. Starting at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. You may be seated. We continue this morning through this short book of Titus. Looking at what does it mean to walk the walk and talk the talk. There's a big problem with false teachers on this small island of Crete. And Paul was charging this individual, Titus, one with whom he had served before. He said, Titus, I'm leaving you on this island. You have a job to do. You've got to clean up all this bad teaching. These people have wrong ideas about what it means to be a Christian. Uh, these people who can't seem to give up the ways of Crete in order to walk with Christ. Last week, you saw a long list of things that the believer is to do, the work of the believer, the goals of the believer. But why? Some of us are very comfortable with long lists of things to do because we can check them off and know how to do them. But a bigger question is why? Why do we do the things that we do? And this morning, I want to walk through the text this way. First, you'll see the work of God. He made us His holy people. Then you see the goal of God. He is motivating us by His grace to good works. And then finally, we'll answer that question, what does the grace-filled life look like? Two thoughts on that. Let's start with that first point. Let's talk about the work of God. Before we get there, though, we have to understand... That Paul had just laid out again a very conventional set of rules. We looked at that last week. There was a whole uh, gamut of things to do. No matter your place in life, male, female, young, old, uh, free, or slave, you were to be working unto the Lord. But now Paul's going to talk about what is the basis of that behavior. Why the church would keep these rules is as important as the church keeping these rules because we can often fall on one of these two sides let me explain these two sides we often find ourselves on there's this side over here it's called antinomianism what in the world does antinomianism mean anti against the greek word for law is namos against the law And this is the person who gets over here, and maybe they had uh, grown up in a a religion that was just based on rules. Then they come to faith in Christ, and it's like, wait a second. It is for freedom that Christ has set me free. Well, it's not about my behavior and what I do. I'm under grace. And now I can just do what I want to do because God is going to forgive me. So I can... Do this, do that. I may sleep with that person. I may, whatever the law may be, I'm under grace. Hallelujah. Or you get over here and you get to this person. And you know, this person, uh, maybe they lived a crazy life. Got saved a little later in life. Lived however they wanted to and knew that that was a path to nowhere. Came to Jesus and it's like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to keep every single rule. I'm going to keep the rules better than anybody's ever kept them before. Or this, you know, this person can also be the one, and this is what I can relate to, the person who grew up in church. And also, your bent is just kind of keeping the rules. And to be honest, you feel like it just keeps you a little bit above other people. You know, I don't drink and I don't chew and I don't go with those that do. Right over here. Now, here's the two traps any single one of us can fall into. As a matter of fact, I'll even go a step further and say every single one of us, we're leaning one way or we are leaning the other through different points and different times in our life. Now, neither of these really get the gospel. They're both in error. And neither, as we we're about to see, works with the gospel and And they don't work with grace. Grace is just this wonderful gift of God. It is a gift of unmerited favor that we find ourselves in with the Lord. That simply by being born, we trust Christ and we receive his grace. It's not based on what we do, it is this unmerited favor. It's this unwritten rule that God's love for me is the basis of my identity. But here's the other thing. Also, doing the good works of God is a grace. Living a disciplined life with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, that too is an act of grace that we don't often think of. That God loved us enough that when he put us on this earth, that he gave us a road map to live by. He didn't just throw us on this earth and not give us rules or uh, encouragement on how to live because he loves us, he teaches us, and this is how you shall live. And he wants us to enjoy a daily life and walk with himself. So, with that in mind, Paul gives this rationale for the rules on the behaviors that he gave at the beginning of chapter 2. I want to start with again with this uh, the work of God in these verses. And look what it says at the beginning of verse 14 who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. And we see his intent providing our salvation. He bought our freedom. He bought a people for his own possession. But to fully get this, we now have to go back to verse 11. In this passage, we're we're dealing with two appearings. We get the initial in verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. That's referring to the first coming of Jesus Christ. He came to earth fully human, fully God, died for our sins. And then there's a second appearing that we'll talk about later. But the rationale for how we live between those two appearings of Christ, his first appearing and his coming again, lies in what we're looking at. And this is an allusion to his comings. And at the beginning of this passage, right at the beginning of verse 11, we see that word for. This is called an explanatory for. Everything that comes after it is saying this is the reason for and explains everything that came before it in those previous 10 verses of instruction. So the past tense, the grace has appeared. It's interesting, is that word uh, epiphane? it's a Greek word, means epiphany. And Christ's appearance conveys this image of grace coming in suddenly and brightly into a world of darkness with the purpose of saving men. And it is the actual salvation for all who believe. It's God's gift to us. And then look at verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now we're in this waiting mode. We're waiting for him. To appear again. And that word waiting. It's a Greek word. It's in a present tense. That means it is active right now. Present. Active. Meaning this is what we're actively doing. Waiting on our blessed hope. In the New Testament hope. It's not uh, something that may happen. It is an assurance of what will happen. And look at what we're waiting for. The appearing And it's again the word epiphany of Jesus Christ. Now look at what we're not waiting for. Paul's not saying wait and look for the tribulation. He's not saying be on the lookout for the Antichrist. He's not saying look out for persecution and martyrdom and death. Don't be looking for signs of the mark of the beast. He's saying look for the return of the Christ. See, we can get so caught up in these things. There's actually a word for it, eschatomania. Eschato means last things. If you study the end times, it's called eschatology, and we can get a mania. This is really prevalent uh, in the 1900s. Dallas Theological Seminary, my alma mater, put on a lot of prophecy conferences that I really enjoy. But at the same time, we can go overboard and always looking. uh, Did you see that? Did you hear that? I bet this is the mark of the beast. Younger generations have become cynical about it because they've heard it for so long that, the, that this and that, and I heard it growing up too, first it was social security numbers were the mark of the beast. Then it was credit cards. And it'll go on to the next thing and the next thing. But what he's saying here is look to the glorious appearing of Christ. And then back to verse 14 again, we see the full work of God who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own position who are zealous for good works. He gave himself up for us to save us. And we see from all lawlessness, that that word redeem, it literally means to set free by payment of a price. We are set free. From lawless or wickedness. Now the world will say you're being set free from all the stuff that gives you pleasure. And that's a lie we're commonly told. That God's laws are stifling and confining and narrow, and we rarely think of God's commands as actually being freedom. That's the grace. In addition to redemption, we're, we're purified. We are set as God's people, we're made to be used. A holy people was his purpose in paying the fearful price that he paid for us. And don't forget, it's not our works that make us God's people. It's what God did on our behalf that made us his people. He made us his adopted children. There's a wonderful quote from Knowing God by Packer. He said this, he said, You sum up the whole of New Testament teaching in a single phrase if you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. In the same way, you sum up the whole of the New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father, a good father. We've sung it before, a good, good father. And if you did have a rotten father, you've got a good one now in God. And if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much they think of God as their father. As being his child. And if that doesn't prompt someone to control and, and to worship and prayer, it means they really don't understand Christianity all that well. That it is a loving and rightly motivated faith. But this is what God has done and why he has done it. And it has an effect on every believer. It's God's work which was completed when we came to faith in him making us his people. But then there's an ongoing goal of God. He motivates us to do good works. He motivates us. This is his goal. And it's ongoing. Back to Ephesians 2.10. Where his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand for us to walk in them. Remember that. We're saved by grace through faith. If You know Ephesians 2.8 and 9. For what? To do these good works. So we move on to Titus 2, 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So God's grace appears, provides salvation. And then according to this verse, it also trains us. And that word training, again, it's a present active verb. It means it's ongoing right now. We are presently being trained. And the gospel's training us. And as we understand the grace of God more and more that's been given to us, that means we are rejecting more and more the ways of the world. It is ongoing. We don't uh, do this perfectly. But it means that more and more we're denying the root problem of ungodliness. That means we are literally in the process of disowning and disregarding this root problem of ungodliness. And it manifests itself in our lives with a constant worldly passion. In other words, you know, I, I keep watching TV and I'm learning as I get older. You know, they, they told me whenever I was a kid, Chad, garbage in, garbage out. And I was like, yeah, 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 whatever. And they're saying the more you watch and listen to what the world is watching and listening to, the harder it's going to be to work against the world. And it's in a, you know, I'm pushing fifty, and I'm starting to think they're right. And more and more, we find uh, so unappealing as we find God more beautiful. We find more unappealing the systems of the world. And if you look at what the world is chasing, I mean, it's it's nothing new. It's money, it's sex, it's power, it's prosperity, it's popularity. This is not what we're to be chasing. And we have this problem. Uh, St. Augustine, if you've ever studied St. Augustine, he said the the problem for every Christian is the problem of disordered loves. In other words, we take good things. It could be a spouse. It could be kids. It could be a good career. And we make it an ultimate thing. And there was a a psychologist named uh, Alfred Adler. He talked about this. He said there's only one first And anything that's not first is a disordered love. When God's not first, then you're suffering from idolatry. And he said, it's very hard to figure out what you're really living for by simply asking yourself. He said, you're not that self-aware. He said, you may think I'm living for God. But he said this. But the way to find out is, is not to ask that question. Instead, Adler said, look at your nightmare. What thing, if absent, would almost or would take away your reasons to live? He said, your deepest emotions, anxiety, fear, despair will point you to your God. It can lead to uncontrollable anger toward any obstacle or person that stands in the way of you possessing it. Despair if you cannot have it. Bitterness. You must discern the idols in your life. Expose it, then destroy it, or it will destroy you. Paul in Colossians 3 and 5 said, Put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And you see, the more and more, it is about letting go of this thing that's killing us over here and moving towards this thing that's giving us life over here. This is the beauty and grace of God. And it is a daily discipline. So the more we see the beauty of God's grace, I see the world more and more negatively for what it is. And you get to the end of verse 12, look at those words, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. This stands in contrast, by the way, with how those Cretans were living. They did what they wanted, no matter what it was. Sexual immorality was rampant in Crete. And note the reference to the present age. And again, that's referring to this age between the two comings of Christ. And this is the chance, this is the brief opportunity you, you and I have to live a moral life in front of God, between while we're waiting. So we're called to a moral life in this present age. And the cause is important. It is the grace of God that motivates us to find what's beautiful, to find more beautiful in what Christ offers. And then down at the end of verse 14 and 15, a people for his own possession, referring to us, who are zealous for good works, did the instruction to Titus, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. Notice this grace we've been given makes us eager or zealous for good works. It's an eagerness. And I, yeah, I can remember as a kid on Christmas Day, we'd often host a family. They'd all come to our house. And it was like, it was like that one time where when my mom would say, okay, Chad, family's coming over, here's what you need to do. I was on it. Because I knew they were bringing presents with them. And I wanted them in there. Come on in, everybody. Yeah, bathroom's clean. Woohoo! Why? Because there was great benefit. I was anxious in anticipation. Oh, man, they're coming over. Let's get this thing going, you all. And that's this kind of this eagerness. Yeah, I didn't mind the cleaning. I was like, ex- who, who are you excited to host in your home? Is it when the kids are coming home from college, coming home from the end of school? A friend you haven't seen in years coming over. See, in that anticipation, you're excited to get stuff done. That is what we see in this passage. Excitement and anticipation of God's coming. I grabbed this, I don't know who said this. The highest and purest motivation for Christian behavior is not based on what we can do for God but rather upon what God has done for us and yet will do. Notice the the last phrase there, let no one disregard. In other words, Titus, don't let anybody discourage you. They're going to criticize you. Don't worry about it. My grace will get you through that too. Be intimidated by no one. That's part of God's grace too, fear no person. Knowing what all he's done for us and why he's done it, we could say this, a Christian who truly loves Christ and looks forward to his return will pay any price to bring his life into conformity with his beloved Lord's will, lest he disappoint him at his return. So then, what does the grace-motivated life look like? Two thoughts here. Number one, evaluate yourself gracefully. Evaluate yourself gracefully. And I, I know what I'm seeking to understand why I do what I do. I, I, I rarely can flesh it out. I mean, even moving to Wyoming, the rubric for decision-making. I I mean, I can make myself nuts. I'm one of those analysis-to-paralysis people. I can think about it and think, you know, give yourself grace. Choose to do the right thing. You probably don't know exactly why you're doing it. There's good stuff with bad stuff mixed up in there. We do evaluate our actions, but remember, it is God who did the work. God is the one who made us his holy people. We don't make ourselves God's holy people by what we do. He made us his holy people, and now in response to that, we do good works for him. I still stumble, but I, by the grace of God, I hope I'm stumbling uphill. <laughs> Things getting better. <clears throat> I came across a prayer, a humble kind of prayer of grace. This is from Francois Fenelon. He was a French priest, lived in the 1600s, and he would pray this. He knew he couldn't live without the aid of God's grace. He'd pray this prayer Lord, I know not what I ought to ask of thee, thou only knowest what I need. I open my heart to thee, behold my needs, which I know not myself. Smite or heal, depress me or raise me up. I adore all thy purposes without knowing them, I am silent. I yield myself to thee. I would have no other desire than to accomplish thy will. Teach me to pray. Pray thyself in me. I think that's a fantastic prayer. We rarely know what we need. I almost go as far as saying we never know what we need. God knows what we need. And then secondly, endure this present age with hopeful expectation. Endure this present age. Look at verse 13. It's not up there. I got it right here. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'll read it again. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In the description, verse 13, of hope, it's this objective reality for which we wait. Christian hope is not just some fuzzy-wuzzy feeling. It's not just a quiver of the liver. It's real. And I'm not just telling you that to make you feel good. I believe that because it's true. And Romans 5 demonstrates that Christian hope is based on the fact that God has already accomplished the harder part of our redemption. While we were helpless sinners and enemies of God, Romans 5.8, Christ died for us. And look very closely at what we're waiting for. Paul doesn't ask us again to look for tribulation or antichrist or persecution or martyrdom. Look for the return of Christ. And if any of these events would precede the rapture, we still look for God's blessed hope. In the middle of persecution, we trust that God is coming, and that gives us endurance. Putting this all together, live a grace motivated life with hopeful expectation. Live a grace motivated life with hopeful expectation. There was a quote in uh, the 60s that Kennedy would often use with his presidential campaigns. He was quoting a, a man by the name of Colonel Davenport. And uh, he was a speaker of the Connecticut House of Representatives. And there was one moment in 1789 when the entire house looked out the window and they saw the skies blackening like they'd never seen it before. This storm was coming and it was so severe, they actually believed this was the end of all things. Can you imagine that? Collectively, in a room of people, things getting so dark out that we thought, well, this is it. We're done. And everybody wanted to end things early. And Davenport said this. He got out of his seat and he said, The day of judgment is either approaching or it is not. If it is not, there is no cause for adjournment. If it is, I choose to be found doing my duty on this day. Therefore, I wish that candles be brought. Rather than you and I fearing what's to come... We're to be faithful till Christ returns. Instead of fearing the dark, we're to be lights as we watch and wait. Please pray with me. Almighty God, it is because of your grace that we are able to do any good work. And Lord, I pray that we would find your commands to be an act of grace. As we seek to live the disciplined Christian life, As we seek to do good each day, that we would trust more and more, not in our actions, but a daily dependence on the cross. Daily, looking to you, Lord Jesus, you've told us who we are, your dearly loved family. And now we have a Father who loves us dearly. And God, I pray that that truth would seep into us more and more each day. It's in the holy and precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Uh, if you are in need of prayer this morning, I would be happy to pray with you. You can meet me down at the front of the church. Also, uh, after the second service, we're having our uh, prayer pals meet and greet. If you're a prayer pal with one of the kids, we'll be having uh, a lunch in there. Uh, you can stick around. You can go to Kevin's Romans class if you want something to do between now and then. Otherwise, have a wonderful Sunday, and we'll see you soon. Thanks for being here.